Hey friend, welcome to Java with Julie, hosted by me, Julie Slattery. This podcast is a listener-supported outreach of Authentic Intimacy, which is a ministry dedicated to reclaiming God's design for sexuality. So let me ask you a question. How do you walk through a pain that no one can see? What is it like for you to suffer in isolation? And how do you cling to your faith when you feel like you keep being faced with new challenges and hardships and you've barely recovered from the last hurdle you faced? Well, in today's podcast, I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Michelle Cushat. Michelle has endured tremendous hardship in her life. She's beat cancer three times. She's had a number of serious surgeries and deep personal relational hurt as well. You know, we can't really talk about sexuality without talking about pain. And although Michelle isn't specifically speaking about sexual pain, there are few people that are better equipped to talk and write about pain and suffering than she is. And there aren't many people who are able to speak about pain and suffering with the depth of godly perspective that Michelle has. So I invited Michelle to have a conversation with me to talk about her new book called A Faith That Will Not Fail. Her book is all about how to practically cultivate that kind of faith that's built on God so that when pain and suffering come, which Michelle will tell you that they will, though your flesh may fail, you can experience the God who does not. Now let's head to the coffee shop for my conversation with Michelle Kashad. Well, hi, my friend, Michelle. Welcome <laughs> to Job with Julie. Yay! I'm, I was trying to figure out earlier how many times I've been with you on Java with Julie, and I, I just, I don't even know, several. I'm going to guess. And I always enjoy it. I'm going to guess this is at least four or five. Yeah, yeah. that's what I'm thinking, because we've been friends for years, but in between, like, I think our first interview was actually not Java with Julie, but elsewhere. But yeah, since then... Yeah, probably at least four or five mm-hmm. and many, many years and lots of water under the bridge. That is true. I'm out of time. <laughs> yeah. And and when you say you're friends, that we're friends, there's different definitions of that word. And uh, mm-hmm. and we're not just the casual friend that says hi every six months. We've had the the joy of doing some life together. The good, bad, and the ugly. Yes. Let me tell you. Yeah. All of it. And a lot of it's been bad and ugly. Can we just be honest? <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, but now that you've opened that, yes, a lot of it's been ugly. And uh, what a privilege to be able to do the ugly of life with a trusted friend. Yeah. Well, I feel the same way. And uh, as I was getting ready for our conversation today, I was thinking about, I think it was your first book, Undone. Was that your first book? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And we did talk about that book on this podcast, which we'll put a link mm-hmm. in. And you described in in pretty graphic detail how your life has not turned out the way you had <laughs> hoped. <laughs> and it's not like, but it's good. No, no, no. no. Uh, you have walked through pretty much every kind of suffering a person can walk through. Mm-hmm. But once you wrote mm-hmm. that book and you got it out there and God used it, then everything got better, right? Everything was fine. Yeah, now, <laughs> no. now life is with a nice <laughs> no. little bow. <laughs> no, not even close. In fact, in some ways, gosh, I even hesitate to say this. In some ways, it's gotten harder. Mm-hmm. You know, the suffering is different. I, I, you know, the short of it is, and like you said, you'll have the link. I've had head and neck cancer three times 
which has left me without two thirds of my tongue. And I've had multiple incisions uh, in my neck and uh, all over my body trying to remove cancer. And um, basically I live with a permanent functional disability and chronic pain as related to three rounds of cancer and have a body that's no longer functional like it used to be. Mm. So that to the side, like I'm not dealing with that right now, but continued suffering that is just as difficult, evil, horrific, gut-wrenching as cancer was, and it looks completely different. And so, uh, yeah, it has not, it's not like it was wrapped up, and I don't anticipate it will be wrapped up with a bow anytime soon until Jesus comes back, quite frankly. Mm. And I know some of that suffering you're able to share and some of it you're not, mm-hmm. and that's true of all of our stories. You know, I think all of us walk through things that we just have to carry with the Lord and with maybe a few trusted friends. Mm-hmm. But let me just say, I know your story, and I know you can identify with pretty much everyone who's listening right now and is walking through suffering. I feel like <laughs> you're like, been there, done that, in the middle of that one. Yeah, yes. which mm-hmm. I'm sure that's not the road that you signed up for. Not at all. In fact, I uh, spent the vast majority of my life trying to um, to manage, control, put structures around my life to check all the boxes so I wouldn't have pain and suffering. I'm a, I'm a security girl. I want life to be safe and secure and predictable. And I worked very, very hard to quote unquote, be a good Christian girl. In other words, to follow God, to do what he says, to avoid doing the things he says not to do, all in the hopes of having a life that was blessed and predictable and godly and all of that. And uh, and yet, in spite of all of that effort, I actually got the exact opposite. And isn't that the definition of suffering? Hmm. When we get the opposite of what we've aimed for, and we don't know what to do there. Yeah. Well, Michelle, many people in your situation would just ditch their faith. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure that that has been part of your journey of even wrestling through, you know, like, do I still trust this God that I say I trust? I, I keep doing the things he's asking me to do, and I'm not reaping good things. Mm-hmm. And um, and there are all kinds of reasons that people are walking away from their trust and their faith in God because of the hardship or the suffering they're going through, but you haven't. And as a matter of fact, you're leaning even more into your faith by writing a book like this, A Faith That Will Not Fail. Mm-hmm. And I even just wonder, is that kind of what prompted this? just seeing people lose their faith in the midst of this kind of hardship? Uh, Yes, in part. So I've written four books now, and (laughs) I didn't choose it, but for whatever reason, God had me write, has had me write an experience all about this intersection between real life and what faith looks like in that place. So not faith in theory, not religion, but what does it look like to walk out a life of faith in the middle of a life that's completely upside down? And in some of my other books, I, I talked more, I guess, theoretically or at a higher level. In this book, I try to get really practical. Like uh, how you know, my thought before I even started penning it was when I was in 
the worst seasons, the kind of seasons where I was curled up in the fetal position in my bedroom, where I had no strength to even get up and go to church or read my Bible, where I was literally cut off at the knees. What helped me to endure one more day, one more hour? Mm. What helped me? And so I attempted to the best of my ability to come up with practices, things that remembrances, practices, disciplines, whatever you want to call it, that actually were lifelines for me. That didn't feel like homework or more religiosity or more checking boxes, but something that actually functioned as a floaty when I was drowning, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's really the impetus behind this. And in many ways, on one hand, it was trying to take really significant, heavy uh, theology, this whole idea of can a good God and evil coexist? You know, can that happen? Make it bite-sized and digestible for anyone and then make it as practical for the everyday person who's in the trenches. And the result was these pages, my mm-hmm. best attempt at that. Yeah, and I know that you personally wrote these pages in the middle of some of yes. the darkest places <laughs> where, you know, yes. me and a mutual friend of ours were, were like, I don't even know how she's doing this. <laughs> I didn't know how I was doing this. I mean, there's really no explanation other than in God's grace and presence, because you're right. As I was writing this book, I was going through the most intense season of suffering that I've equal to my experience with life and death cancer, mm-hmm. like equal to mm-hmm. that kind of intensity where I was on my knees and had nothing to offer, nothing to give. And it was there that these pages were written which at some level will lend some credibility mm-hmm. <laughs> to what I'm saying. I didn't write from a place of theory no. or idealism. It was literally written from the darkest pit. Yeah. And, um, you didn't and sometimes even, that's what we need. You didn't even write from the perspective of hindsight, you know, mm-hmm. like, like you were in the thick of it. And one thing I just want to mention, when you were going through cancer and you had physical wounds and you were physically laid up. Everybody can see that. Mm-hmm. But the kind of suffering that you've been walking through and that a lot of people are walking through is even more difficult because nobody can see it. And in some cases, you can't even talk about it. Exactly. But exactly. you're saying it was just as isolating and horrendous and mm-hmm. painful as three rounds of cancer and having your tongue removed and and just horrible yes. physical suffering. Yes. Yeah, there is, and for those who are listening, some of you will totally get this. There is a heart suffering that actually is so deep, so wounding, so painful that it becomes physical, where you feel it physically. You're suffering, your heart suffering, the ache in your heart, the brokenness, the loss, the grief, all of that is so big that you literally feel it in your body. And that's, that's the kind of suffering that I wrote from with this mm-hmm. book. It wasn't, it wasn't an illness, but I was heart sick mm-hmm. and heart sick to the point that I felt utterly broken. Mm-hmm. Well, let's dive into some of these practices. And in some ways, mm-hmm. you've, you've already sort of mentioned this, but when you talk about the depth of suffering that people can be walking through, it seems almost shallow to say, all right, well, let's go back to the Christian disciplines. You know, like (laughs) you need to pray more, you need to memorize scripture, Mm -hmm. 
So can you just address that out of the yeah. gate, how maybe that could even be off-putting for some people? Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, I'm, I grew up in the church, so my parents became Christians when I was about five, six months old. So I, even though faith was brand new to my parents, I've really never known life without Jesus in it, mm-hmm. which means I've been going to church every Sunday, you know, growing up Sunday nights, Wednesdays, you know, multiple times a week, reading the Bible, praying, fasting. Those have been practices, disciplines that have been part of my DNA from the earliest years. And yet when I was truly at the end of myself, I had no ability to do those things. And so um, I even hesitated using the word practices in this book because I didn't want people to think it was homework. When we're at the end of ourselves, Jesus doesn't say, I just need you to work harder. Mm. Okay. In fact, he says very clearly in Matthew, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. It's this idea of, it's not about us working harder. It's about us resting in the work that he's already done Mm. and is doing, right? And so when we talk about 10 practices to build up your faith when your world is falling apart, it's really not about doing more, but resting in what's already been done. And that's the posture I want you to take as we talk about these practices. Okay. Yeah. And I noticed that you don't have the practices of prayer. Of yes, I don't. <laughs> scripture memorization of fasting. Like mm-hmm. this is, and there's a time and a place, of course, for those disciplines. There is. Absolutely. I'm not saying we're throwing that out. However, If you are at a place where you are like Elijah, the story of Elijah is a beautiful one to me. He's doing all this ministry. He's done all the right things. He's a godly man who is being faithful to God's call in his life. And yet he reaches the end of himself and he collapses next to a stream under a bush and says, I'm done. I take my life. I don't deserve to live. I don't want to do this anymore. I've been there. I know what it's like to literally say, I don't want to wake up tomorrow. I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. And what God does for Elijah in that moment, he doesn't tell him to fast more or pray more or read more scripture or make sure he signs up for a Bible study. What he says, what the angel of the Lord says to Elijah in that moment is, um, get up, eat, for the journey is too much for you. He takes care of his physical needs. He gives him rest. And God himself feeds him from his hands because the journey is too much for us. And so that's the image I want you to picture as we talk about these 10 practices to build up your faith. Hmm. As you tell that story, Michelle, you know, one of the things that I think is sort of a cliche in Christianity is God won't give you more than you can handle. And <laughs> what God said right there to Elijah is, it's kind of the opposite of that. like The absolute opposite. Like, By the way, that's garbage. God will give you, I mean, life will give you more than you can handle. That's just, it's given me more than I can handle more than once. Yeah. And that's exactly what God was saying to Elijah. The journey is too much for you. Mm-hmm. What? Take a moment and consider that, that we have a God who doesn't tell us to just buck up and pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, but actually sees us being completely buried by life and validates it by saying, yes, the journey is too much for you. Mm. Well, I don't see in one of these practices eating angel bread. Uh, <laughs> I'm, sure, <laughs> yeah, I'm exactly. sure it's integrated into that, but but let's, 
let's pick a few of these 10 practices. And I kind of wrote down some ones that I I thought we could cover, but I'd love to know which ones are most on your heart. What would you like to share? Well, I actually opened the book with the practice that was most important to me to cover, and it's the practice of lament. And my publisher and I had multiple conversations about this because it seemed a bit of a downer to open a book talking about lament. Yeah. (laughs) Uh (laughs) lament is an ancient word let me just for those who don't know it's kind of an old english word that simply means the vocalization of grief it's the demonstrative expression of grief or sadness or loss and i open with it intentionally because the truth is one you and i can't even start to get to a place of healing until we deal with the grief, the wound, the infection, the thing that has us so broken. And dealing with it means telling the truth about it. So, and second, the church has not done a great job of teaching us and allowing us, at least the modern church, allowing us space to actually openly express and demonstrate grief for real loss. Mm -hmm. We too quickly try to, we feel like to be people of faith that we need to put on a happy face and quote happy scripture and say things like God is good all the time. Well, yes, he is. But God is so good that he has not only allowed us, but encouraged us to give voice to our grief because this life gives us many reasons to grieve. Mm. What do you think is the difference between lamenting and complaining? Or is there... Well, yeah, I think both are allowed to some extent, okay? So we've got Jeremiah, who the whole book of Jeremiah is nothing but a giant complaint. He's often called a complaining prophet. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, prophet complaining? Okay. Um, But he was giving voice to just the chaos of his time and the fact that people were not turning to God and he was working so hard and nobody was listening Mm -hmm. to him and you know, kind of sounds like my role as a mom, quite frankly, <laughs> but that's another story. But I think both are allowed. Lament is truly um, digging into the places of our deepest pain and losses and grief and pulling it out and laying it out in front of God. Like we are basically cutting ourselves open down the middle and exposing the depth of our sadness and loss and grief in its ugly form. Mm -hmm. Like we're not varnishing it. We're not trying to polish it and make it pretty. We are simply telling the truth about our pain, but we're doing so in the presence of the only one who has any authority, ability to do something about Mm -hmm. it. And that's God himself. Yeah. You said that you started the book with lament because it was the one that was the most helpful or important to you. But I also wonder if there's an ordering of these in any ways of when we're really in deep suffering, that's where most of us need to start. Yes. And that's exactly why I opened with it. We talked about moving it later in the book. And I said, the truth is for the person that's barely hanging on, they won't even be able to contemplate any other practices until we give them permission to weep. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Does that lamenting need to just be with God or is there a place to pour out our lament with other people? Well, I think it is individual and it's corporate. I think there's a value of both. There's individual lament where we pour it out directly to God. But there is also value in lamenting within a community. So you and I have talked about 
the uh, suffering as I was writing this book. If I had done that in pure isolation, I would have missed out on some of what I believe was God's conduit of healing with his community. And so the fact that there were times you and I and our other friends, we lamented together, like just weeping, agonizing, wrestling with the mess of all of it. And that lament within the context of safe community was part of the healing as well. Mm -hmm. In other words, I needed somebody to bear witness to my pain. Yeah. And can I just say, as your friend, that was not easy for you. It was not easy for me. And I'm sure it wasn't easy for you either. I think it was harder for you, though. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, correct. Probably so. (laughs) I think that's fair. And yet, that's what the church is, Mm -hmm. right? And Jesus said the church is a hospital for sinners. Well, hospitals, I've spent a lot of time in hospitals. Hospitals are places of grief and lament. Mm. That's what they are. Uh, and if, if I mean, I can't even picture being in a hospital and having people, you know, when I was in the ICU and hooked up to all kinds of machines, there was nobody saying, keep a stiff upper lip, just put a smile on it, everything's going to be okay. Yeah. It was a place of suffering. And the people who joined me in that place adopted that posture with me. They joined in it with me. Well, that's what the church is. Mm-hmm. It's a place for us corporately to allow ourselves to express grief and suffering in the presence of God himself and each other. Mm. And we all bear witness to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the reasons that giving ourselves room to lament, even as I compare it to these other practices you have, it's almost like it feels like it's not accomplishing anything. Yeah. It feels like we're just stuck or wasting time. And actually, the opposite is true. It's one of the most productive things that we can do when we're grieving. Why? There is something about, well, let's put it this way. When I lament, when I agonize over my current reality, when I sit there and face it and acknowledge it and allow myself to sit in this place of even somewhat railing against the human condition, Mm -hmm. I finally am in a posture of somebody who is ready also to receive deliverance and healing. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I I used to be a nurse a long time ago. So I've been in the medical. There are certain things that you have to do when you have an infection or a wound to get the body ready to heal. You have to deal with the infection. If you have a burn, you have to debreed the skin to get it ready to heal. You have to deal with it. Just covering it up doesn't do it. And so I think this idea of lament, it's the thing that actually uh, enables us to pull ourselves up as close as we possibly can to the cross. Hmm right? Mm -hmm. The cross is the means of our salvation. The cross is the intersection of God coming down and connecting with humanity. It was the cross that connected with humanity. And when I choose to acknowledge the reality of my human condition and what a mess it is and how sad I am about it, I am literally underneath the feet of Jesus on the cross. I'm pulling up next to his blood-soaked body, and acknowledging that I need rescue. Hmm. And that has to happen before we'll ever be able to receive healing. Hmm. But that's a beautiful picture. You know, even when it says to share in Christ's sufferings, you know, that's sort of like a mystery of how do we do that? But you just, in many ways, have described that. 
Michelle, some people, and I've talked to many people who have this fear, if I give into my lament, I'm not sure I'll ever pull, I'll ever pull out of it. Like I'm holding the grief back, the sadness back, and to open that dam, it may overwhelm me, and I don't know if I'll ever be the same again. Well, there's validity in that, and you probably won't be the same again, mm-hmm. but that's not necessarily the worst thing that could happen. Yeah. Right? Amen. To hold it all in, to not tell the truth about it, it will take you under. Mm-hmm. But I also know the process of of suffering, acknowledging the suffering, lamenting it, and taking it to the healer, Jehovah Rapha, the healer. It will change you. You will not be the same. And that is probably exactly what needs to happen. Hmm. Can you tell me how you're not the same as you were maybe five years ago? Ooh, or even five months ago? Sure. Um, yeah, let's do it. Oh, I hardly even know where to begin. In fact, I feel like just the thought of considering it hits a tender place in me. It's um, I no longer, I no longer at a different level, I should say, at a deeper level, I understand now that avoiding pain really isn't the point. That there's a better goal, there's a better end, there's a better objective. I also know at a deeper level that as much as I love my life, my family, my kids, my whatever, that this isn't all there is. At some level, living with chronic, unrelenting suffering has forced me to slowly loosen my grip on this life and to start to reach for and cling to the next one. Hmm. Um, we are, we especially as Americans, privileged Americans, we have such an infatuation with our existence, (laughs) our human existence and our homes and our jobs and our cars and our comfort and all of that. We, We are just, we have so idolized it. And as a result, we become blind to future reality, which is even more real than this human experience. And so suffering and the fact that it refuses to leave me uh, has uh, forced me to lose some of my affection and infatuation with this temporary existence and to start to develop a deeper love and desire for the future promise of eternity with God himself. Mm-hmm. It's also changed me in the fact of I no longer rush to get through a season of pain. I mean, this doesn't mean I'm a masochist. I don't enjoy it (laughs) whatsoever. And I still want to flee it. But I've also had enough repetitions of these kinds of seasons to know that there's something I see and experience of God's reality in places of suffering. That the moment the season of difficulty is over, I lose and I want it back. Really? Wow. And so as a result of that, there are times now as I'm walking through these seasons that I remind myself, I, I, I did it just this week, don't forget, you're going to miss this mm. when the pain is gone. Mm-hmm. You're going to miss the intimacy you have with him. You're going to miss the, the ways that he shows up in ways that cannot be explained. You're going to miss the insights that you have here, the ways that you see just a bit more of God himself in this place, the way that his face is clearer to you here, you're going to miss that on the other side of that. So don't move too fast. 
pay attention. Wow. And that just sort of echoes the words of James and of Peter who said, hey, it's actually a good thing when you go through times of suffering or persecution Mm -hmm. because of what you're saying. Um, Just the ability to hear God's voice more clearly, that intimacy, the insights that he gives you, and ultimately that refining of our character and our faith. Oh my goodness! Can I let me just make it super clear. Um, the suffering, as much as I've hated it over these years, if it had not, if that hadn't been the road I'd walk, I'd be the most self righteous, legalistic, proud Christian. I mean, I still am at times, <laughs> in spite of all of this refining. I it makes me shudder to think of what my character would have been like without this mm-hmm. necessary and severe mercy of suffering. Mm. It certainly has deepened my compassion and empathy. It's enabled me to forgive things that I would have never forgiven. You know, I just, it's, I just can't overstate it. Yeah. Left to my own devices, I would not be a good human being. Mm. And it's, it's at some way the grace of God that he's allowed this suffering to refine me. We can all say that alongside you. And, you know, I've never really met a follower of Christ who wouldn't look back on a season of suffering and say, in some ways that was the best thing that ever happened to me, or I would not want to go through it again. But I also mm. am so grateful for the ways that God refined me through it. So that it's really a tension. Mm-hmm. Like there's no part of me that's super happy about all of it. <laughs> In fact, I still have days where, you know, I have a lot of chronic pain and there are days where the pain is acute and it makes me afraid that the cancer is coming back or I might have that physical suffering again or in some of the more hard issues of my life where something will trigger me and I'm afraid mm-hmm. that it's going to happen again, whatever. And so I still have days where the fear of that kind of suffering is real. Like I still have days where I am moved to tears at the thought of more suffering. Like it is terrifying and that's just the reality of being human. So it's not like that goes away, but it's like a tension of, I do acknowledge that, you know, I don't candy coat the reality of that kind of suffering. And at the same time, (laughs) I also see the sweetness of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know how to explain it. It's like Mm -hmm. Isaiah talks about secrets in darkness and treasures in hidden places. Mm -hmm. You know, it's darkness and and secret insights. It's, you know, hidden, awful, isolated places and treasures there. It's all at the same time. Some of what you're describing is in what you write about in terms of the practice of perspective, like you've just described Mm -hmm. the heavenly perspective, the eternal perspective, and then also the perspective of what God is doing within us through this. And I want to bring up another tension point in this, even in terms of perspective. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we get mixed up in saying, what I'm going through is yielding good fruit. And then we start to think, well, maybe God created what I'm going through. Whereas in reality, like cancer is a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing. It's evil. Yeah. When we talk about (laughs) the ways people are suffering, abuse is a horrible thing. War is a horrible thing. God doesn't want that to happen. So how do you deal with that tension of, I want to have a perspective of seeing God's goodness in this and that he's, Mm -hmm. he's allowed this, but not get confused of God must be angry at me or he's vicious or he's mean to do this to me. 
Yeah. Oh boy, that's that's hard, and it's such a heavy, complicated theological issue, and so many people have different perspectives on it. So all I can share is kind of like my process and where I've landed in that. Mm-hmm. First of all, uh, you know, First John says God is love. Mm-hmm. Period. God is love. Like at his core, his very nature, if you summed up God's uh, existence in one word, it's love. He's the embodiment of love at its perfection, which means nothing that happens, nothing that he allows or whatever can operate outside of that core part of his character. That's so important. If we don't, if we just see him as angry and powerful, then we're going to feel that he's punishing us or that we've somehow failed. People land on one of two ways. Either God is punishing, angry and punishing, or I wasn't good enough. And so it's my fault that this is happening. So we have to blame him or blame ourselves. So for whatever reason, though, I don't think God caused cancer to come back and for me to have it three times. I don't think he's caused the abuses that my family members have gone through. I don't think he's caused all these different things. But regardless, he's uh, omnipotent and omniscient, and he hasn't prevented it either. So what do I do with that? All I can say is that God sees a bigger story than I can see. He sees a narrative. He sees a plan that if I knew what he knew, I would think the same thing that he thinks. Like if I had the same context that he had, maybe on one hand, I've heard Tim Keller say that, Mm. if I knew what he knew, I would ask for what I have, right? I would have asked for it anyway. Mm -hmm. That's pretty profound to think about it that way and pretty heavy. And then the other piece of it is, All of these different things, when we suffer at the hands of somebody else or a diagnosis that nobody can explain or whatever it may be, this I know to be true. He wastes nothing. He wastes nothing. That means every single experience, all of it, all of it somehow by the hands of only a God who holds the whole universe in his palm can weave it all together to some kind of ultimate ending that is beyond our wildest imagination. The thing that keeps going through my head lately, the phrase is to remind myself, trust the story. Trust the story that God is writing. Trust the narrative, the plan. Trust that this God of love, who this is at his core, that all these different things, even though it's not what he wanted or desired, it's woven into an ultimate good. And the evidence of that, the best evidence is going back to that cross again, because the cross looked like the worst case scenario. It's not what anybody expected or anticipated. It looked Mm -hmm. like the Mm -hmm. worst ending to a novel ever, like the the Savior died, and yet it was the very Mm -hmm. means to ourselves. Michelle, when you say that God never wastes anything, I really have lived that and believe that. I wonder, is there a part of what we need to do in order that not be wasted? Um, you know, I, I, I go back to like Hebrews chapter 12 when it talks about, you know, enduring through difficulty and enduring through discipline. And there's an if there, like if you will bear up under it, God's going to produce this this fruit. And even at, at the beginning of our conversation, we mentioned people who have gone through suffering and they walked away from God and they lost their trust in him. Yeah. Okay. I, you just said the key word right there. It's about mm-hmm. trust. I mean, really, it ultimately comes down to that. 
I'm always cautious to sit there and say, you know, I need to somehow bear up or do something in the middle of it. The truth is there are times I have no ability to do that. And I think that is when we truly recognize that God is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the orchestrator of all of us. I, at some point, my job is simply to have a mustard seed of faith, to trust mm. him. And then trust that he who began a good work in me is going to carry it on to completion. He carries the work out. I trust him. There are some days that I'm able to bear up under it better than others. There are some days that all I do is curl up and say, I have nothing. To, I have nothing. I got nothing, God. I trust you, though. I trust you. And that is enough. There's a quote that I include in the book that I mentioned Tim Keller before he the late Tim Keller, he said something in a sermon, and he wrote this in his book, The Reason for God. But he uses this illustration of, let's say you're falling over a cliff and there's a branch that if you grab onto it, it can save you. Is it the color of the branch or, or the leaves of the branch? Is it the, you know, is it, what is it about the branch or you or the branch that's really going to save you? Is it your ability to, to hold it a certain way or to know its epidemiology, like know its botany and how it's made. No, none of that. It's the object of your faith, not anything about you that saves you. It's the object. And so mm-hmm. realizing that really what saves us is the object of our faith. It's not us. I'm so cautious. We've been so ingrained with this works-based mentality that we have to earn mm-hmm. our way to God. And I'm, I really don't want to lay that burden on people mm-hmm. who are suffering right now. Um, yeah. Just it's enough the to simply say, I trust you, God, yeah. and let him work this through you. He is the branch. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. beauty of it. He is mm-hmm. it. It's the object of their faith that saves you, not you. And how do we do that? Well, well sometimes it's simply just saying, I trust you. Mm-hmm. I've done that many, many times where I verbally out loud say, I, yeah. I trust you. I don't know what to say. I'm mm-hmm. at the end of myself, but I trust you. Well, I feel like maybe we have time for one more of these, and I'm going to recommend people okay. get this book. I know many who have already read it and been blessed by it, but I'm going to pick Shalom. So Shalom means peace. I'm sure you'll describe that, but how in the world is you're clinging to this branch in the middle of a storm do you actually say I'm at peace? Like we sing the song, you know, it is well with my soul and it's a beautiful song, but how do we make that a reality where mm-hmm. nothing is going right around us and yeah. there are true things to be afraid of, but we have peace. Well, first we got def- to have a proper definition of shalom, God's kind of peace, because we mm-hmm. have the human peace, which just means an absence of any kind of difficulty. That's not what God's promising. In fact, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. You know, there's this, God made it very, very clear that this human existence is going to be rife with difficulty and trouble. So we're not talking about an absence of difficulty, an absence of conflict and absence of chaos, the storms will come. What this kind of shalom is, shalom is an Old Testament Hebrew word that really means a wholeness or completeness in God. Like it's a wholeness. 
I want you, there's a, a fun New Testament story that all kids who grew up in church heard about. And it's the, the two people who build their houses. One built their house on the sand and one built their house on the rock. Okay. And it really isn't even about the house. They were both houses. It's about what they sat on. What, what they were secured to. And the house that was secured to the sand, all it took was a storm, and that house was completely wiped out. The house on the rock was hit by a storm too. So again, this isn't about the storms and it's not about the house because both happen, right? Mm-hmm. But the house that was on the rock stood, no matter how the wind beat up against that house, no matter the tornadoes or hurricanes or lightning or whatever, the house stood. And it wasn't because the storm was different and it wasn't because the house was better. It was because the rock that mm-hmm. it was built on. Right. That kind of shalom, God's shalom is us learning that when we are grounded in him, when we are when we are built on him, that he is our rock. He's the thing that we have ourselves, our fingers and toes wrapped around. He is the thing. He is the secure foundation that holds us firm, no matter the the storms that go around us. That is a peace that will stand even when the winds blow. That's this kind of wholeness, completeness in Christ that is truly God's shalom. Hmm. And how do we get that? I, I, I mean, that's a very probably profound question. And you're like, oh, you know, do I have three hours to explain this? But yeah, well, you know, shalom, that's somebody, how do we, it's so funny that that's the question. How do we get that? Like mm-hmm. we should be able to put a dollar in the vending machine <laughs> yeah. and push a button and get it. Yes. We have such a transactional view mm-hmm. of this kind of Christian life. We really do want quote unquote homework because we think if we do the homework, then we're going to have the life that we want. Yeah, give me, give me the three way. steps, Michelle. <laughs> it how doesn't do I do work it? that way. <laughs> I'm going to leave with yet another, we've talked about so many different biblical references and stuff like this, but just so you know, that's a part Part of my shalom. Yeah. So part of my shalom is seeing evidence of God in the lives of others and then walking it out as best as I can myself. But this is the image I'm going to leave you with. And it's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So it's Old Testament. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were uh, godly men who followed God during a time of pagan, anti-God culture. Okay, sounds familiar, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And they lived in a time where the king had no respect or worship of God. In fact, he believed in any and every God that had ever been created. Like he was kind of a pantheist, right? So, and this king told everyone in the kingdom that they had to bow down. He created this idol, this big, huge statue, and everybody had to bow down to the statue. And, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, King, we respect you, but we're not going to bow down to the statue. And the king said, well, if you're not going to bow down, you're going to be dead. I'm going to throw you into this blazing hot oven and we're going to burn you because I am the king. And what I tell you to do, you need to do. And they said, basically, sorry, we trust God. I trust you, God. I trust you, right? And so the story goes on. Shadrach and Meshach Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace. And, you know, they should have been incinerated within a second Instead, when the king and the people look in the furnace, they see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing there in the middle of the fire, unhurt, right? They are not being burned. They're walking around, and there's a fourth person in the fire, right? Mm -hmm. So you see these three men, and by the way, don't think for a second that they weren't scared, Mm -hmm. but their trust was greater than their fear, Mm -hmm. okay? They're in this furnace. There's a fourth person in the furnace, 
What's so interesting to me is, is the place that God's presence was more, most apparent wasn't out with the people. It was actually in the place of suffering. Hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so the conduit of their shalom was not the absence of suffering, but suffering with God in the middle of it. Yeah. And so how do we get that shalom? I think in part, it's a, us learning to walk out our seasons of suffering without trying to numb it or escape it or flee it or control it, but actually being present to it and looking for God's presence in the place of the fire. Well, as you listen to Michelle's perspective, you may have needed to hear that yourself. And maybe this is a conversation you need to forward a close friend who's going through something difficult. And let me just tell you, because Michelle is a close friend of mine, I know she really is walking through the things she's challenging us to do. Now, it might sound crazy to some of you who are walking through extremely hard circumstances to think that God is present, but I am so grateful that we can have faith that He is. There are parts of God that He longs to impart to us, even when we experience seasons or decades or even a lifetime filled with all kinds of challenges and tribulations. And I pray that listening to Michelle today has encouraged you to seek God in the middle of whatever you might be walking through. Michelle's book that is called A Faith That Will Not Fail uh, is available through the link in our show notes. And you don't have to be facing the same challenges as she has to be encouraged by this book. In fact, I believe that her book is for every believer in every season because we've all got to learn to anchor our faith in a God who's bigger than the troubles we face. So friend, if you feel like you're going through a season that's taking you to the end of yourself, my hope and prayer is that you will know that you're not alone. The pain, the sadness, the disappointment you might be feeling, hey, they're real, but God sees you. He's with you. We've included a link to a blog post that really connects to this topic, as well as a link to our page featuring stories and advice on healing. I recommend that you check out both of those links. And I hope you experience God's renewal as you listen to this episode. And I look forward to being with you on Thursday as we continue our journey in understanding how God meets us in our pain and suffering. 